Hello and welcome to Words in a Time of Lockdown, a podcast from the writer's block Cornwall, exploring creativity and creative writing in a time of change. The writer's block is the creative writing centre for Cornwall and I'm Polly Roberts, a writer and member of the writer's block team. We hope you find some inspiration in what you hear. Today's podcast is an extra special one. Our guest is lyricist extraordinaire, producer, writer, cricketer and patron to the writer's block, Sir Tim Rice. Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita are just a few of the huge musical theatre productions that Tim has co-written. His work has won Oscars, Emmys and a Tony Award. He's a keen cricketer and founded his own cricket team, Heartache CC. He's also launched a publishing house and written an autobiography, among so much else. This year, he co-wrote the song G7 for the Sing to G7 project, which aimed to put children's voices at the heart of the 2021 G7 Summit here in Cornwall. Well, Sir Tim Rice, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast and coming and meeting me here today. It's such a pleasure to have you. It's my pleasure. I hear that you've been rather busy on this trip down to Cornwall. You've been part of a huge project, Sing to G7, with your song G7. And I know that you recently spoke actually with some of our Y7 News Cornwall students that we trained up to be young reporters throughout the G7. And they were talking to you about the song and about, well, I think you said to them how you'd always liked writing for a a young audience. Is that true? Yes, I think writing shows like Joseph and The Lion King, which are probably the two shows I've done, which are aimed at children in a way, but children of all ages. Um, I think it's very important when writing for children that you should not talk down to them and you should not be afraid to use words that they might not understand or even an entire um, attitude they might not quite understand. Mm. But um, that's why I think shows like Joseph and The Lion King work quite well because um, older people also enjoy them. And obviously a lot of it's down to the great tunes I've been lucky enough to work with. But um, yes, it was... It, it was So this song, G7, which I wrote... Um, on at, you know, sort of at the request of the Truro Cathedral Choir, who are a very good choir and who I've supported and been a fan of for many years, um, they wanted a song to commemorate the G7 mm. um, summit. But I didn't want to write a song about the world leaders or bang on about let's all have a wonderful love and peace round the corner because that doesn't often happen. And. I wanted to write something which I thought would be entertaining and would perhaps have a bigger canvas, if that's possible. Mm. So I wrote a song, a tribute to the number seven, and it's called G7, G-double-E, as in G-Wiz, or G-Baby. <laughs> and it's a tribute to the number seven, but by talking about all the things that seven represents in our universe, seven colours of the rainbow, seven days of creation, um, seven seas, seven deadly sins, all these things which are part of our culture and part of our history and part of our mathematics. By doing it through the number seven, I think I was able to make a few other points which weren't, mm. which wouldn't date. You know, if you go rabbiting, banging on about one particular crisis, however serious that might be, it might be something that, that 
isn't universal or people might even disagree with it. But if you're writing something about Pythagoras or the Seven Hills of Rome or a few facts, but making people think, well, hang on, the number seven, that was there in a way before man even existed. Yeah. The relationship of mathematics to science, all these things were there before we were. We just weren't around to know them and we weren't around to give them names. Yeah. But um, seven has always been a prime number, even before we invented or discovered prime numbers, I should say. You can get a bit, I, I can, I can overanalyze all this, but the point was to write a fun song, which on one level said, look, number seven, seven, seven colors of the rainbow, seven stars in the sky, seven ancient planets, all that. On the other hand, you suddenly start thinking, hmm, maybe there's a broader canvas here somewhere. Mm. And I stuck in a verse at the end about um, let nation speak to nation, don't let the others down or... If you forget about the less fortunate, we'll run you out of town. I although, love that last Although line. running people out of town in Cornwall is difficult because the roads are so narrow. <laughs> <laughs> Have to get helicopters. I had this vision out. of Biden and Boris being chased down Cornish roads by a lot of angry people. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly been a really interesting week down here with that going on and, and lots of different opinions from people about what the G7 means and what they hope to get out of it and about it being down in Cornwall. Uh, I know you spend a lot of time down here in Cornwall. Is Cornwall an important place to you? Yes, I've had a house down here for 30 years, Wow! which is the longest I've ever had a house anywhere. And I'm not Cornish, but I did discover um, a few years ago that I do have some Cornish ancestors. Um, uh, there's some ancestors of mine from the 19th century who were buried in Mevagissi. Um, I had no idea about this when I moved down here. Um, and I played a lot of cricket down here. I've always loved the county um, from childhood holidays. And um, it's, it's, it's great to have a permanent link with, with, with Cornwall. Mm, yeah, and you are our patron, so you also have that strong link. Which that is, is correct. Until I'm fired, that is, that is true. <laughs> you just watch it. Right, okay. <laughs> Is it, is it quite important to you, the young people of Cornwall too? Because obviously this G7 project as well. I mean, when you were talking about the lyrics there, I thought I really admire that because I can see that in all of your work, that it's it's subtly powerful. Somehow you're not necessarily addressing the oh, it's big things, but the, the direct thing. And yet something about each of the songs just it is timeless and they do last and they stay and they work for everyone. And I do think with the G7 with the young people having all those young voices that brought so much power yes I think that's true and particularly when they're very talented voices I mean I'm not only keen to get through to children or young voices who happen to be good yeah. um, everybody can 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 sing a bit everybody can enjoy singing and a good song which is memorable and that depends largely on the tune and has words that people can understand. They may not, as I said earlier, they may not understand every aspect of what the song's about. But if you, if, if there's a basic simplicity which gets a message over, that's a start. Mm. I mean, I find some of my lyrics over the years have been interpreted in ways I never thought about. Mm. And I find myself thinking, well, that wasn't what I meant. And then I think, well, hang on, maybe that's a point. You know, you can sort of see something that your words have by mistake stated yeah. and sometimes I think oh I quite agree with that other times I think oh I'm not so sure but um, 
that's that's one of the fun bits about trying to trying to write words, whether they be song words or prose. You sometimes get other interpretations of mm. what you've written, which you don't necessarily you hadn't thought of at the time. That doesn't mean they're not valid. I think it's part of the magic of it. It's it's interesting. I think every writer has to go through a certain stage of learning to let go of what their intention perhaps was and realise, wow, this thing kind of lives and breathes by itself. Yes, I always like the story of um, Shakespeare coming back to do O-level or GCSE in, in Hamlet and failing because there have been so many things read into that brilliant play that Shakespeare never thought of. It doesn't mean to say he, was, he still wasn't brilliant and it was a great play, but when you get something like that, and I'm not beginning to compare myself with Shakespeare. Um, you can. <laughs> I'll make that clear. <laughs> um, when you get something as brilliant as, as almost any of Shakespeare's plays, and it's open to lots of interpretations. I think what, what the thing is that if you write something um, that actually is, is true to the characters who are saying it, then that, that means... It can be analysed in lots of different ways. If the if the if the character characters in Hamlet, for example, if 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 they are believable, which they certainly are, then the listener or the reader can often find things which would be in a character were that a real person. Mm. I'm not, perhaps I'm not explaining this very well, but um, I think it's it's very interesting because the words of something are often just a starting point. Yeah, the same is true true of course for music. Perhaps more obviously, a great piece of music without words can stir different feelings and different opinions, different emotions in different people. The same piece of music can mean 20 different things. Yeah. And I think to a certain extent, that's true for lyrics as well. It's not, obviously, it's it's slightly more definite what, what, what words are saying than what music's saying. But I think a good lyric is often one that's slightly... Vague, perhaps vague is the wrong word, but but slightly okay. enig- enigmatic. Mm. So it's not absolutely obvious what what's being said. Sometimes that makes a lyric stronger. I think that's really true, and it's interesting. I, I'm kind of hearing that maybe you've learnt to play with that over time. After for initially realizing, hang on a second, my stuff is taken very openly. Then you can kind of play with that aspect. And the way I look at it is humans are so complex we don't even get to really fully know ourselves let alone our closest friends and family so knowing how people are going to take something everyone's going to take it differently yeah I, which is good yes it makes it interesting I'm really aware when you were talking that you you were bringing up Shakespeare you know quite a lot you've talked about other things that kind of give hints to me about your literary knowledge I know a lot of your um <laughs> maybe <laughs> a, a lot of your work seems to have roots in literature or very maybe just the beginning roots I mean I guess I'm thinking Heathcliff or even well Heathcliff which was an interesting project was not really my idea at all I was um, asked by Cliff Richard if I would like to write the words for this musical he was putting on starring himself as Heathcliff and I, because it was Cliff, and I'd known Cliff for a long time, and I liked him, I like him, I admired him, and I was thrilled to do it. And he also, the composer was a, a very good composer, John Farrer, who wrote, among other things, You're the One That I Want, 
Right. And hopelessly devoted to you, songs from Greece. He'd written a lot of stuff with the shadows, and, and he was a distinguished songwriter. And I think we wrote some nice songs for Heathcliff. I don't think the show quite worked, to be honest. Right. Uh, perhaps I, perhaps you know, I mean, it, it, it didn't get the world's greatest reviews, but I enjoyed it. I mean, I kind of had to read the book, Wuthering Heights, which I found a bit of a heavy going, to be honest. I, mm. I, it, it didn't grab me enormously. Um, I thought it was, you know, there were some wonderful passages in it, but the storytelling was a little bit, it wandered around a bit, and you were never quite sure who was narrating any particular chapter. But um, I was very glad I did it, because working with Cliff, I mean, he's such a professional, you know, brilliant artiste, and he always gives 100% to all his projects. And I don't think, to be brutally honest, Heathcliff worked 100%, but it worked for Cliff, and it was very successful. Mm. Um, I don't think the piece, although funnily enough, we had a request only the other day from um, a young lady who's, who loved it and wanted to try and do something else with it. And I said, fine. But we haven't been inundated with requests right. to restage it because without Cliff, it really wasn't something that, 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 that um, I think could stand up um, on its own. But maybe, maybe it could. I don't know. But my, my literary expertise, which is really rather limited, <laughs> I mean, I think if I hadn't been asked to do Heathcliff, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know much about Wuthering Heights, apart okay. from Kate Bush's brilliant record. So you're not necessarily a, an avid reader. Well, I am an avid reader, but an awful lot of my stuff, I realised, you know, some way down the line, once, once I'd been in the business for a while, was, is, is based on reading I did as a child. Right. And I think as you get older, you tend to go back to what affected you in your childhood. And by that, mm. I mean quite young childhood. Mm. I mean, Joseph was a Bible story I loved when I was about six or seven. Superstar was something which um, particularly struck me. Um, I went to one or two pretty full-on Christian schools. Um, and I was always fascinated whether or not I believed in some of the religious dogma. Um, I was always more interested in, in actually historical possibilities, right. particularly of the Judas Iscariot character who is not really mentioned in the Bible. So that was something from my youth and even Eva Peron. When I had a stamp collection aged about eight or nine, she was on all the Argentine stamps. And I didn't. Oh. And it was slightly unusual for a country to have in those days on their stamps have um, somebody who wasn't actually the president or the, or the, yes. or the, or the, or the big chief. And um, I, I remember learning just a tiny bit about Ava when I was very young. And it, and, it, and it came back to me when I heard a radio program about her when I was 26, 27. And after the success of Superstar, I thought, I remember that lady from my stamp collection. And I remember I was intrigued by her then. I, and I did a bit of research and I became more and more intrigued. And I thought, interesting story. Mm, and other things that I've written have been based on I mean, been helped by my childhood. I was very into cartoons when I was a kid. Um, the animated Disney cartoons I loved, the ones from my childhood, the old ones like Bambi or Dumbo or Snow White, um, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, Peter Pan. All these were great cartoons which I loved as a child. And when I came to work for Disney, when I was considerably older, yeah. the fact that I knew these works as well as any of the people working at Disney. In fact, I grew up with them, was a huge help when working on The Lion King or Aladdin mm, or Beauty I and the Beast. I see that. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating to hear where these stories have kind of come to you 
from. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what we do at the writer's block is is trying to, we call them um, imagination firelighters. So we're just trying to get people to find stories and actually realise how easy it is to start seeing inspiration and ideas everywhere just by making things a little bit curious, sparking the curiosity. Yeah, well, a, a good story is key to every musical, every play, every novel. Um, however beautifully a novel's written, if it hasn't got a story mm. or a through line, it will struggle. Mm. I'm, you could probably name lots of exceptions as something that's purely well-written, but a great story is what makes a great musical, and that's more important than a great score. Mm. It helps to have a great score, to put it mildly, but a great score with a naff story will probably not work. I mean, they've tried musicals based on Sgt. Pepper, which is a wonderful album, great songs, but there's no real storyline, and it hasn't really mm. quite worked. But if we have a great story, like Les Mis or Joseph or something, yeah. you're halfway there. Yeah. It helps, of course, if the tunes happen to be good, then you're 90% of the way there. But story, story, story matters. And when I was a child, I used to love... Um, I love school stories, which J.K. Rowling, Rowling has completely um, tapped into brilliantly. Yeah. And so many young people must have got into reading books, some of them quite long, thanks to her, because the stories are so good. And they're, yes. and they're set in um, partly in fantasy and partly in a world that a lot of young people recognize, i.e. school and dodgy parents and, and yeah, you know yeah. this that, and the other generational problems tell me about your writing process I mean I'm gonna send you way back now I'm so curious I was reading a bit about you and about how when you first started writing with Andrew Lloyd Webber that you two actually at some point quit your jobs to work full-time together on well I'm getting the impression it's full-time I'm not sure <laughs> so how how on earth do you collaborate with someone on writing a musical theatre. How does that go about? Well, I should say at this point, Andrew didn't quit a job because he didn't have a job to quit. (laughs) He was was still a student and and he would have had to have got one pretty soon. But um, we had an offer from a management team who heard our Joseph album. And we'd been able to record a Joseph album because we'd written Joseph for a school. And it went down so well with the parents, we performed it again to a public audience, still totally unknown to the vast majority of the country. But when we did it at St Paul's Cathedral, we were able to um, get a little bit of publicity for it. And children who'd heard it by that point already loved it. And we got ourselves a good management. I was working at EMI Records. I was three years older than Andrew. I I had already had to work for a living. Um, He was still a student. Um, and then we were offered um, a deal by this management company, a gentleman named David Land, who became our manager and agent, who said he would happily back us by paying us a wage every week or a salary, an annual salary for, for three years, guaranteed, options to renew. Wow. Um, and all we had to do was write. So I, it was difficult for me to give up my job because I you know, promising job at EMI. I was a pretty small fry, but I was working in a very humble capacity with some big names in the music business, like Cliff and The Shadows and, you know, other other artists. Yeah. And 
EMI Records had the Beatles right at the height of their fame. And so I was working for the company that had the Beatles. And Gosh. if you're in the music business, and then we had the Beach Boys and we had Frank Sinatra and we had, I mean, it's a big company. Yeah, yeah. And it was a bit of a, I had to think about leaving because all, all we'd done at that point was write Joseph and one other musical before that, which didn't get anywhere. And I thought Joseph was really good and I thought Andrew was brilliant. But that didn't mean success yeah. in my view and I needed to get a job. I mean, or to keep a job rather. And so it was a bit of a gamble. I thought, well, if I don't do it, when Andrew was saying, oh, we've got to do this, but well, that was easier for him to say it simply because he didn't have a job and, and that was going straight into something he was going to be very keen to do. And I was keen to do it, but Andrew was convinced he was going to be successful. I was not. Not about him. I was not convinced I would be. And um, But I, I took the plunge and we came up with Jesus Christ Superstar, which did all right. <laughs> Just a little bit okay. Yes. <laughs> wow. So yeah, it, it really changed things. But it is interesting, that risk-taking part. I think for a lot of creatives, they have to yes, decide I think, to take that plunge. I think when I was 20, I was, what, 24 or something at the time, and I thought, God, I'm 24, I'm, you know, getting old. Um, it's, I've, I've got a job with a good company. And I was, you know, the, the, the play it safe, the cautious me, yeah. was fighting against the chance to mm. grab an opportunity. And, of course, I could have if, 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 if we'd failed dismally. I'd only be 27. Yeah. And I could have probably got a job in another whole company or something or, you know, done something completely different. But so in retrospect, it seems like I, was, I would have been insane not to have done it. But it did take, a, it was quite a lot of, you know, panic and worry. Oh, I'm sure. Um, but um, obviously, I'm glad I did. These things are easier to look back on, aren't they? Once you know how they work out, Correct. or you realise what it's like to grow up and gain confidence. And so, you've mentioned failure a few times. The first theatre production that you wrote, not making it anywhere to begin with, and a couple other times. I'm really curious about how do you cope with that? How do you cope with the criticism? Well, we didn't get any criticism for the first show because nobody saw it. <laughs> So um, I wasn't too depressed. I mean, I think my expectations were not that high. Um, I didn't think, I, I thought having success came to other people. Um, and I didn't, even though I thought we were quite good at doing it, we were learning our trade, but even, yeah. even though I, I knew Joseph was jolly good, I, ne I never saw it as anything other than a school, school play, a school concert. And... The schoolmaster who commissioned it, we, we weren't paid, he just asked us to do it. The schoolmaster who asked us to do it said that if it worked well, he might be able to get some educational music publishers along to hear it. And if they liked it, they might publish it in book form. And we might make you know a few hundred quid every year or something if we were lucky um, by schools buying the books, um, which indeed happened eventually. But... but um, the thing that happened first was we, we, we got the record and the management deal thanks to things like doing it in St Paul's. Yeah. Wow. I mean, it's such a journey. And again, I imagine looking back, maybe you can be a bit lighter on yourself about it. It's, I just, well, I it's know a lot of luck, an awful lot of luck. I mean, you've got to have good fortune as well. Um, and Andrew certainly had the insane confidence Right. And I think he was probably 
a bit worried when the first show didn't get anywhere. But looking back on it, I think he would agree now it wasn't good enough. It had, it had its moments. The tunes actually were quite good, but the story wasn't very good. And um, which wasn't my fault, I hasten to add, because when I met Andrew, he'd already got the story and he'd, got the, right. he'd written the tunes. And the chap he was at school with had written some perfectly nice lyrics, but he didn't want to stay. You know, he, he thought, and in his case, quite rightly, he should do something sensible, like be a doctor or whatever. And, and he became a very distinguished doctor. Um, but Andrew wanted somebody to write lyrics kind of full-time. Right. Which I, I, obviously to begin with, I was still hanging on to my job at EMI Records. What about now? How, how does your creative process work now? I mean, how do you keep a balance between life and work? Well, I'm, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I don't really have the urge to do any massive new projects these days. Um, I get asked to do a few things like the G7 song. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a lot of work to be done on, on shows that never quite made it or need, perhaps will move on into another um, area, like chess, we're, we're talking about doing a movie of chess, right. um, which I would love to see happen. Um, Aida, a show I wrote with, with Elton John, which was very successful on Broadway, um, has not yet come to London, and, and we were talking with the producers who were, who were Disney, actually, about bringing it to London just before the pandemic struck. So we've had two years right. of not doing anything about it. So I've got quite a lot of work on the, on the back stuff, and I don't, I don't really have any huge desire to get involved in a brand-new project. I don't really have any particularly good ideas. And, and I feel I'd kind of be unlikely to do anything that was you know, better than the stuff I've done before. Mm. Um, I suppose that's perhaps a bit defeatist, but I think I'm quite good at recognising what might work and what wouldn't. There's one show I I did in London um, seven or eight years ago called From Here to Eternity with a really gifted composer called Stuart Brayson, and we were just about to get that relaunched. We we did it a couple of times in Out of Town in America, and it went down really well. And we want to get it on in Britain, and we... We are hope, hopeful because we have a producer and we have theatres and a director. We're hoping to get it on in now in sometime 22. Um, Amazing. You can't really say anything definitely at the moment. You can't say, oh, we'll open in July because you probably won't. Yeah. Um, so, but I've got quite enough on my plate and I've been doing a podcast every week. Yes, I heard about this. So tell me, how did that come about? Well, I just thought, got to do something to keep me occupied (laughs) (laughs) I mean it it was it was quite time consuming it was a bit like writing one's memoirs which I I I I did the story so far um in a book that came out in 1999 I think which was a story up to my life up to Evita and now I keep meaning to do the rest of the stuff including all the work with Disney and, and 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 other shows and things but um I never quite got around to it yet but then I thought well I could do some podcasts, and I've done 50 of them. And if you listen to all 50, it would be like you'd, you'd almost have heard my memoirs part two. Amazing. Um, and, and a rerun of part one. Um, so I enjoyed that. I've given it a, sli- a slight break as we speak, which is the summer of 21. But I'm, I'm going to go back. I think what I'd like to do maybe in the winter is 
a podcast on each of my shows, whether they were successful or whether they were disastrous, and, and play one or two tracks from them and analyse why I think they did well or why I think they yeah. didn't do well and what I hope for the future of, of, of the shows, whether they have a future. Um, so, because when I did my podcasts, sort of slightly jumping around, I mean, I, I, I did a few podcasts on chess. I mean, each, each podcast was only 20, 25 minutes, so it wasn't too long and boring. Right. <laughs> and they would probably be on one show. Sometimes I'd jump around different shows. But um, I always tried to play tracks that people don't know. I mean, you can only play, you know, I know him so well so many times or Don't Crack Me Argentina which are, you know, they're nice songs. Um, but I wanted to play sometimes different versions of them, the original take or the outtake, or, mm. um, which I think is quite interesting for fans mm. of, of musical theatre. And, and from that, you get an idea of how things take shape. Absolutely. I think it's a great... It's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is to kind of show behind the scenes of art forms and art pieces and artists' lives. I think it's fascinating. And you, you mentioned there your autobiography, and I, I know you've written a couple other books, I think, well, a cricket book as well, and the World Records, is that right? A Guinness World Records? No, I did um, with, with Gambaccini, Paul Gambaccini and my brother Joe and Mike Reed. Um, we compiled the Guinness Book of Hit Singles. Okay. Which, in the, in the days back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, the charts were all important. Yes. They're not so important now. So I mean, my people father say, tells me. hey, you know, so-and-so's had seven number ones. And I think, I haven't heard of this person. I mean, it's just because I'm yeah. slightly out of touch. But um, the charts in themselves ruled the music world. Um, being number one was a big deal yeah. up until about 1990. Um, now, everything's much more disparate. There are so many sources for music. It's, mm. and People don't actually buy music in the way we did mm. we would go out and buy an object and take it home and look after it yeah now people buy usually for nothing everything yeah and so it, it's much harder to tell what you should be listening to yeah there's a lot of good stuff out there but there's also a lot of bad stuff out there uh, yeah. that's always been the case but it's more so now because anybody i'm not trying to discourage anybody but anybody can make a record Anybody or make a recording, I should say, and you know, get it onto various platforms. But sometimes it's there's so much stuff out there, it's rather hard to determine yeah. what really, really has great merit. But back in the day, we um, followed the charts with incredible enthusiasm, and, and the Guinness Book of Hit Singles, which was really popular, became a sort of bible for reference for oldies shows and this and the other. And um, we followed it up with a book of hit albums. People love books on music. Yes, they and, do. Um, but by about 1990, we thought, hang on, we're getting a bit old here. We don't really know what's going on. So <laughs> we never got the chance to analyse Dua Lipa's string of hits. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's something of the kind of sanctity of music that has been lost a little bit more recently. I, I, music is such a moving Thing. I remember being little and saving up my money to go and buy a tape or to buy my and like the, buying my first CD was such a holy moment and I'd grown up with a father who collected records and it, it music was holy he spoke a lot about sitting and listening to the radio for the top of the pops every week and how special that moment was I think in those days 
listening to records was an event in itself. And when I was a kid, I remember we would buy singles, pop singles, and um, but none of us could afford to buy more than one every couple of weeks. Yeah. And so, but between us, we would we would have a lot of the charts, and there was nothing on the radio those days. Very little pop music on the radio, so we would gather at somebody's house, and we'd each bring the singles we'd got, and between us, we would have a an hour of listening to the top twenty. Amazing. Um, and we'd all play the B-sides, you know, the flip sides of the records. But vinyl, which is what I was brought up on, real records with, you know, black things with a hole in the middle, um, is coming back. Or it, was, it and is, yeah. A lot of artists now put out their stuff on vinyl. And it yeah. gives it a bit of an added authority, I think, because anybody buying, if, 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 you, if you buy a bit of vinyl, which can cost several pounds and you take it home, you're going to play it. Whereas if, if you just pick something up streaming, and you, you, you've really got to have a strong reason to give it full attention. Absolutely. But if you have a vinyl album with a lovely cover and sleeve notes and a bit of biography and photographs, it's great. It's an event. It's like going to the theatre or the cinema. Mm. So I'm getting the feeling that with the writing you do or have done, that a lot of the kind of drive is a, is a love of music and is the kind of passion towards yes, music. Yes, I, I was always... Um, very keen on popular music when I was a kid. I was lucky to be born at a time when just young enough to, or just old enough, I guess I should say, to get Elvis um, just before he went into the army. And of course, I grew up with the Beatles and the Stones and all those wonderful groups when Britain ruled the world. Yeah. And up to about 1964, British records hardly ever conquered the world. They'd be popular in Europe, I mean, even Cliff Richard and the Shadows, who were the number one act before the Beatles, they didn't have hits in America, Mm. or very little small hits. And nobody in England thought that was strange. We didn't think, I wonder why Cliff doesn't, you know, because nobody did. And then suddenly, in 1964, the Beatles broke through, and everybody from Britain had hits in America. Wow. And it was partly because the records were so good, but it was also because the world had shrunk yeah. And um, records were more easily available quicker. Yeah. And um, a record would come out around the world almost simultaneously. And artists could fly to America much more easily. All, 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 all these things um, brought, brought the music world together. Mm. Um, and, of course, 50 years after that... In a way, the the world's been brought too close together. You know, mm-hmm. there's not much mystery anymore now. Mm. So how how has the last year been for you, where where we've kind of shut downing and we've got this information about the world still? I mean, like yeah. you say, the mystery's gone. We're getting fed in so much that it can be quite overwhelming. But we've been very limited to our our place, our country. So yeah, how has that affected your? Well, I feel very sorry for the people who are young. You know, I'm talking not only about the kids who've had their school disrupted, in my view, often totally unnecessarily, because thank God this pandemic doesn't seem to cause much problem or Mm. much trouble for children. Um, But I feel very sorry for people who are starting out as writers or performers, Mm. because there's just not enough chance to show your wares. And I'm sure that the real talent will still get there, but they've been knocked back by a couple of years and that's tragic that had happened to us when we were 
well, when we were 23, 24, I, I doubt if I would have given up my job at EMI. Mm. I would say, well, I'll hang on to my job because that's all I've got. Mm. So it's 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 been awful. But when you when when you get to my age and you're you know you've you've, you've had the good fortune to have a long career, mm. um, I suppose a lot of it's been a, a bit of reflection. I've been sort of going back to stuff I've done before. I've been writing podcasts. You do sort of get into a looking back mode, mm. which is fine. I rather like that. Yeah. And, um, of course, one of the things you can't do, or I've not been able to do in a big way, is, 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 is see friends. Yes. Um, but um, I can't really complain about um, the pandemic to the extent that um, it's, 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 you know, I've been living in comfortable circumstances. I feel desperately sorry for people who've been locked up in... Yeah you know small rooms or small places it's terrible yeah um but for a lot of people it's not been it hasn't been hell yeah and 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 it 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 does make you think differently about what's important i mean all right you miss out on a few things but also you're able to get rid of a few things you didn't really want to do Mm -hmm. um so it's it swings and roundabouts but it's when the world will get back to normal i know not Mm. it keeps we're being told all the time that you know, they'll come up with a new variant, I'm sure, to, to stop us getting free. <laughs> it's really interesting. What strikes me when you're talking is the same thing with the lyrics of how all the different perspectives can read something differently. And and actually, you know, you're talking about looking back on your life and that being interesting now, actually, because, again, I imagine there's lots of new stuff that comes from this new perspective. And, yeah, this last year with the pandemic has definitely given a lot of people a different perspective on things. Yes, it has. I mean, I suppose it's an interesting one because if you've if you're just starting out creatively, you might not necessarily have, and no reason why you should, you might not have a clear perspective or clear set of ambitions. You, you're just mm. thinking, and I think it would be wise. You're thinking, which way shall I go? What shall I do? And of course, the options in the last year or so have been narrowed down a lot. Mm. You can't say I'll. I'll join an acting company or I'll, I'll get my songs out there because it, it, it's hard to do. Um, and looking back from having been around for a long time, you almost don't want a new perspective yes, because, right. you know, you, 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 you're, you're, you're quite happy to look back and summarise um, what you've got up to. Mm. Um, so it's a difficult one, but it certainly makes you, makes you think a bit differently about, you know... It, non-creative things or makes mm. you think about your family or your I mean one thing I did do was was get a dog and and um go on a lot of walks mm. which has been good for me well we've done the same and uh, she's turned into a bit of a lockdown dog that's quite needy oh dear <laughs> I what, hope it's not the what same make of dog is it or German Shepherd Cross but she was a rescue dog so oh great but but so she's quite big quite she's some quite size. big she's absolutely lovely but yeah. yes what's her name She's called Hanu. What's your dog's name? Hanu? Yeah, Hanu. (laughs) What's a good name? I mean, is that a... She came from the streets of Bosnia, so it's the name she came with. Oh, right. Okay, great. Mine's called Kirsty. Oh, lovely. It's a boxer. I was driving... I'd I'd chosen her. I'd always loved boxer dogs. I'm going back to my childhood again. I grew up with boxer dogs. My parents had one. And I wanted to get a boxer. And I wanted a female because they're slightly less hassle. Mm. And um, I chose one from a litter... And I had to come back in eight weeks when it was ready to pick it up. And uh, when I was driving about an hour to Milton Keynes, 
or near Milton Keynes to pick up my, my new hound, I suddenly thought, I haven't got a name. You know, I haven't chosen the name yet. And I said to myself, the next female name that comes up on the car radio, that's her name. <laughs> I could have been Gaga or Beyonce or, or whatever or Margaret or something. But um, it turned out they played a record by Kirsty McColl. Amazing. Fairy Tale of New York, great record with Kirsty McCall on the Pogues. And Kirsty McCall was a great talent. And I liked the name and I liked her. I, I met her a few times and she was a delightful woman, very, very gifted, tragic, dying so early. Mm. And so I thought, Kirsty, it's an unusual-ish name for a dog. Um, and that's her name. Amazing. And I... uh, she knows her name. It's quite a good name for calling Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. I love it. Again, how inspiration hit. Well... I yeah. won't keep you any longer, but just before we go, I, I do wonder, in terms of Cornwall, how, how that inspires you, whether it play, has played a part over the last 30 years. Well, I've written an awful lot of my stuff down here in Cornwall right. because I get comparative peace and quiet here, even with even in non-pandemic times. People can't turn up, you know, well, they can, but, but, but not so easily uninvited. Mm, yes. And um, there's no temptation to say, oh, I'll just nip into London tonight or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I've done a lot of work down here, um, which, which has been very enjoyable. And um, a lot of stuff I've written has been written in, in the house I have in Helford. Mm. And, um, and I love it. I mean, I, I, I go for a lot of walks here, I think. And you do get ideas on walks. Yes. Um, and, you know, if, 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 if I'm stuck on something... Um, it's nice to be able to just wander out of the house and walk through the woods or whatever. Um, so I, I, I owe a lot to Cornwall. So it's nice to try and do one or two things for Cornwall in return. Well, thank you so much for the part you play with us and for being here today. It's been an absolute honour and a privilege. Well, thank you. For me too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening, and thank you again to our wonderful patron, Sir Tim Rice. You've been listening to Words in a Time of Lockdown, a podcast from the Writer's Block Cornwall. Music, sound recording and engineering was from Jimmy Marshall of southwestsonic.com. Next episode is a conversation with writer for radio, short story writer and our artistic director, Anna Maria Murphy. Anna is a renowned writer in Cornwall who has partaken in a huge number of community projects, organisations and events. She was part of Knee High Theatre in their early days right through to the end. She's written for Radio 4 and is a crucial part of the Writer's Block team. Her unique sense of creativity, humour and imagination make for great chat. Hit like or subscribe to hear when it is released. <laughs>